Well, I would just like to thank everybody for the opportunity I've had here at uh, Faith Community to both serve alongside of you as I study, but um, even more than the, the, the joy and the pleasure I've had in studying and growing in those skills has been the joy I've had to serve alongside of you, to be blessed by many of you. Um, as part of my seminary experience, one thing that has stood out to me over the past couple of years that many of my professors had made mention of is the fact that in seminary and then in later in ministry, many of those who initially set out to minister, who set out to serve, simply do not continue in it for the long haul. That for whatever reason that may come up, many do not have an enduring ministry. Now, along with this, I came across a poll recently put out by the Barna Group that asked pastors, current pastors today, asked them this question. If in the past year you have considered quitting full-time ministry, an astounding 42% of pastors said yes, that in the past year they had considered quitting full-time ministry. Now, thankfully, not all of, most of them did not, but it just goes to show the incredible burden that is there and the Um, that even almost half of pastors have toyed with the thought of quitting. But is this anything new? Is this something that's just relevant to our modern age? No, no, of course not. And in fact, we can see even going all the way back to the New Testament that Timothy himself, I think, struggled with this. If we look at the book of 2 Timothy and we look at the exhortations and the encouragements that Paul gives to Timothy, I think we can rightly conclude that Timothy himself struggled to continue to endure in the ministry. Although he certainly persevered in that, it was not without difficulty and was not without encouragement. In particular, if you look at chapter 4, Paul outright exhorts and commands Timothy to preach, to reprove, to rebuke, and exhort. That is to say, he commands Timothy to fulfill his ministry. But the interesting thing about this is that is exactly what Timothy was already doing. We have no indication Timothy ever stopped. That was the ministry that Timothy had in Ephesus. So the question is then, why did Paul need to exhort him again? And I think it is just simply this. Timothy was wavering. He had doubts, he had concerns, and he had struggles that were causing him to consider perhaps hanging in the towel. But the beautiful thing about Paul's exhortation in chapter 4 to Timothy is that it doesn't come until chapter 4. What I mean is this. You could think Timothy, I mean, Paul could have written the letter simply, Dear Timothy, get back to work. Paul. I love joy, peace, Paul. But he didn't. He didn't start off with that. He worked up to it. He first had to give Timothy the encouragement, the tools, the equipment, everything he needed in order to continue to minister. He needed to give him... um, the tools for a faithful, enduring ministry. 
And we have to consider as well that the truths that Timothy needed to hear are the same truths that everyone needs to hear in Christ's church to continue a faithful ministry. And let's not forget that all of us, every single follower of Christ, has a God-appointed ministry within the church. Remember Ephesians chapter 4, in verse 11 through 12, Paul says this, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ. The work of the ministry is done by all of the saints. And in Peter, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10, Peter says this, As each has received a gift, and each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. So just as Timothy had a ministry to fulfill, which was according to his gifts, you also have a ministry to fulfill according to the gifts that God's Spirit has given you. But with this has brought a question in my mind, a struggle that I've been wrestling with over the past couple weeks as I've been preparing for this sermon. And that is this, if Timothy struggled to fulfill his ministry, if so many pastors even today admit to struggling to continue in their ministry, then I just got to ask, how are you doing? Are you okay? How are you doing in your ministry? Are you fulfilling your ministry? Do you need encouragement? Do you need building up? Do you need the equipment and the tools to succeed in the ministry that God has appointed for you? If that is you, if you are struggling, perhaps, maybe you are struggling. Perhaps even you've already been tempted to stop using your gifts within the body. Maybe you're starting to pull away from serving. Maybe you've pulled away a long time ago and have simply decided to attend but not risk the hurt of actually using your gifts to serve. But if that is you, or if that could be you at any time in the future, then this message is for you. And if you haven't already, please open your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 3 and starting at verse 10. Together, we are going to look at three, thi- three things to consider to have an enduring ministry of faithful service. Or another way might be three considerations to have an enduring ministry of faithful service. Now, what do I mean when I say considerations? I mean that there are, just, there are three things here in this text that questions that you should be asking yourself about your ministry. And I'm just going to give them to you up front here real quick, and then we'll walk through them. The first question you should be asking yourself is, how should I be evaluating my ministry? The second is, what should I be prepared for in ministry? And the third is, what should I be doing right now? Now, you might notice there's, a, uh, there's kind of a past, future, present tense to these questions. Kind of they all hit a different area. And evaluation, you know, looking back at how you've ministered, that's past. What to expect, that's looking forward. And what do I do right now, that's present. 
And the only reason I bring this up is because that's exactly what you'll see as a structure in the text before us today. If you look at verses 10 and 11, Paul is speaking in the past tense to Timothy, looking at his ministry up till then. Verses 12 to 13, he's speaking in the future tense, telling him what to expect in his upcoming ministry. And then verses 14 through the end of the chapter is a present tense imperative. This right now, in light of all that, is what you are to be doing. But let us start in verses 10 to 11 with our first consideration of how to have an enduring ministry of faithful service. That is, how should I evaluate my ministry? Now, what... Why do we need to evaluate our ministry? What, what is the purpose of that in terms of having an enduring ministry? Well, I think the implications are obvious. One, if your ministry and the way you are ministering doesn't meet the qualifications, if it doesn't meet the standard, well, then you've got to reorient. But secondly, if it is, well, you kind of need to know it. You kind of need the feedback for the encouragement. I formerly had a small business and I had an employee and he did a great job. I loved the work he did. I never told him though. <laughs> and so I believe my shock when he came to me in almost desperation asking for a meeting. He wanted to know how he had been doing. He wanted a job review. He wanted me to review his performance so that he could know where he needed to improve and where he had been doing well. And I, I think we all have that to some degree where we when you're working day in and day out, when year after year you are serving and ministering, sometimes you just got to know, am I doing it right? Does God approve of the work that I am doing? And as we go through this criteria, we'll have the opportunity to assess whether that is true or not. And this list here, unlike any list that we might get in the world, is a Holy Spirit-infused list of what are the proper criteria for ministry. So follow along with me as I read, starting in verse 10. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Now, I want you to notice that our passage here starts off with a however, a you however, or some translations might say, but you. What that means is what Paul is doing here is contrasting Timothy's ministry with what went before it. And what went before it, Paul was just telling us in chapter 3, verse 1 through 9, about the false teachers and their ministry. And now, in contrast to those, he is giving us attributes that are distinct from those false teachers, false disciples. And as we look at this list, we see that this is a list that completely distinguishes itself from anything that would be a worldly benchmark or a worldly standard for ministry. You see, there are a lot of things that we could look at as a standard for ministry. We could look at numbers. We could look at reach, you know, with the social media and whatnot. We could consider our fame or just how much money we make even. There are a lot of, or perhaps just how many friends we have and, and how many people say, you're doing a great job. 
There's a lot of wrong ways that we could gauge our success. It may even be on how many meetings we have. How many people do we have as disciples under us? How often do I teach? But here's the thing. The false teachers could have all the same criteria, and they could meet it, and they could even excel and do better at those criteria than true disciples. So those are not the true distinguishing marks of a minister, of a true servant of God. Those things are still important in their own place, but they are not what distinguishes genuine service, genuine ministry to God. There are two errors with this, I think we can go as we look at this list, and just two things to be prepared for. You may be the type of person, as you come to this list, who is discouraged, but it's because you are judging your ministry according to worldly standards. And by worldly standards, you're failing or doing nothing special. And I hope that by going through this list, you can be encouraged to see that the things that God values actually are there and are active in your life and in your ministry. Some of these things we might run into and think, hmm, yep, no, that I got to work at. And hopefully, by knowing and addressing those things, it can secure a lasting ministry, one that is actually pleasing to God in all ways. Now, we have this list, it's quite substantial, of different things Paul mentions, and obviously we can't go in detail with each one, but I'm going to try to just briefly run through them all and to give you an idea of what Paul is meaning when he mentions these different things. First of all, he says to Timothy, you have followed my teaching. The first criteria that Paul gives here is recognizing an adherence to the teaching which has already been laid down. Simply put, you cannot have an acceptable ministry if it is not informed by proper truth. Furthermore, there is no other avenue of understanding or knowledge or teaching that Paul expects Timothy to seek after. Timothy has not followed after visions or followed after signs or followed after... um, any variety of things he could have followed after. What he followed was Paul's teaching that has already been laid down. The teaching that Paul has is the teaching that Christ gave to his apostles for the building up of the church and the same teaching that we continue today. Following from teaching is your conduct. That is the way of life, how you live, And of course, we recognize that conduct, your way of life, flows directly from the teaching that you adhere to. That is, if we believe something is true and we teach that, then that truth should impact the way we live. For Paul and for Timothy, we can see that the teaching and the truth of the gospel greatly impacted the way they lived. They lived in a way which reflected that truth. And in the same way, we need to live lives of purity and holiness, which reflect the truth of the gospel, which we believe. Next, we come to purpose. Now, when we think of purpose, we have to recognize that to have a purpose implies having a reason for something and being set apart from something else. 
An analogy I like to use is to think about your kitchen sponge and your toilet sponge. They each, they're, they're basically the same thing, right? But they each have a unique purpose. And for the kitchen sponge to be used for the purpose of the toilet sponge makes it not a very good candidate for its original purpose. And so for us to live out our purpose, we have to recognize that sometimes this means and excludes us from things that maybe aren't even inherently sinful, but things that simply distract from the use that we were meant to have. I think if tractor, what is the purpose of a tractor? Farm work. Now, if every once in a while you decide to take the kids on a little joy ride, that's okay. But if suddenly a tractor is only being used for fun activities and pulling hay rides, it's not accomplishing its purpose. And we too, we need to be focused on the purpose that God has appointed us to and not let our lives be distracted by all the filler. We need to ask ourselves the question, are we committed to accomplishing our purpose or, and are we living to the glory of God or are we seeking pleasure with our lives and recreation? Faith. And next, now faith, it seems so basic in our, motive, in our ministry, but we recognize that as we minister, faith should be the underlying motivation for everything. If you are here serving, if you are giving yourself up for the ministry and for others, it should be because you have faith in the gospel and that you believe in a heavenly future reward. We don't serve, we don't minister for rewards right here and now. Now, it is true, there are blessings, there are benefits that happen as you minister as part of the church. But those cannot be the goal. That cannot be what you're seeking after. Imagine with me for a moment what happens if you are ministering, but it's not out of a faith in a future reward. What replaces faith as a motivation? Maybe you want to please people, looking for the approval of man, maybe serving to make friends, seeking money, fame, desiring power, authority. If faith is not the motive, then what creeps in will inevitably destroy any opportunity for effective God-honoring ministry. We minister not because we believe in this life for a full reward, but we look to the next. Patience. Now, this comes down to how we minister. Now, patience, for Paul, is always in reference to patience towards people. This is not patience in stressful situations. This is patience towards people who require patience. Often it's spoken of of God having patience on us because we're sinners, because we um, don't respond as we should, and yet he is patient with us. Paul describes God's patience towards him as the, the worst of sinners he describes himself. And so patience, if we exhibit patience towards others, we are exhibiting a God attribute. We are being like our Father. And the good news is, I can guarantee God is going to give you plenty of opportunities 
to act that way because God has probably given you many difficult people in your life to whom you can show patience. There's probably no shortage. And all of us, in fact, are probably that person that someone else needs to show patience towards as well. (laughs) But as we minister, we need to show patience in it all. Now, love, love needs to be central in your ministry as well. And at the heart of love is considering the best interests of others above yourself. This means having a willingness to sacrifice your own time and resources for the benefit of another. Now, does this mean what is in the best interest of someone else? And what is in the best interest of someone else is growing them in godliness. Doing that which is going to produce godliness and others is our ultimate goal in loving others. This means, among other things, that love cannot, love must be in truth and cannot have any association with lies. So it is not loving, for instance, to affirm something that is untrue about someone else. And we see that very actively in our culture today as many are asking us and others to affirm a lie about themselves. But love, true love, cannot affirm a lie. Steadfastness. Now, steadfastness is having endurance through difficult circumstances. Now, the way I like to think of steadfastness is if you're steadfast, you're able to adhere to all these other qualities in extremely difficult circumstances. It's doing all of that through difficulty. It is to remain firm in the teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, and love, even through fiery trials and adversity. And it is exactly those trials and adversity that Paul's going to come to next. Now, this last part of the verse is a little interesting. Paul is essentially saying, Timothy, you followed me in my persecutions and sufferings. But here's what's neat. Unlike the other um, attributes, unlike these other criteria, Paul elaborates a little bit. He tells us a little bit more. He's telling us which sufferings and which persecutions he has in mind. He says, those that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra. Now, got to stand back, give you a little history. This is kind of neat. For those of you, a refresher course in Acts. Paul and Barnabas, on their first missionary journey, when they come to Antioch, they bring the word. Some are saved, but then opposition begins, persecution begins, and they are forced out of the city. And so they flee on next to, um, to Iconium. And there the exact same thing happens. They give the word. But those from Antioch, who they first ran to, actually pursue them. That's the extent of the persecution. They are actually following them city to city, trying to disrupt their ministry, trying to undermine the word they are proclaiming. And so they are forced out of Antioch, or out of uh, Iconium as well, which then brings them to Lystra. And in Lystra, Paul heals the um, paralegic man. And they think he's a god. And so they, yeah, hail, it's uh, Zeus and Hermes. And they say, no, 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 that's not us. But then the same guys who are persecuting him in Antioch and Iconium, they followed him there and they stir up the crowd against him again. 
And here they are actually stoned, drugged out, and left for dead. Timothy's nowhere in there so far, right? So, so where's Timothy? It's actually not until the second missionary journey where they revisit these cities, but without persecution this time, that in Lystra, the city where Paul was stoned, he is introduced to Timothy, who the believers there put forward as a faithful man, and he is asked to come along with him. So we have this picture here. Timothy lived in the very city where Paul was stoned. In fact, he most likely saw it. One thing, I had an opportunity through expositors to visit Israel. And one thing I was struck by going to all the cities and all the different digs is how small these ancient cities were. Uh, Many of them you could very easily jog around. And so when something big happened, when there was a big event, there's no way that not everyone just saw it. Timothy would have seen his people, his countrymen, his friends drag Paul out of the streets, out of the city, and stone him. He saw the hatred. He saw the vitriol. He saw the difficulty in the ministry that Paul had. And yet he was willing to follow it. And we know that one of the key reasons Timothy was so able and ready to accept the gospel when Paul arrived was because of the faithfulness of his grandmother and mother teaching him the word from a very young age. And so when Timothy, Timothy so what it means that Timothy followed him is means he was willing to associate. He saw how hard it was and yet he chose to go anyways. But at that point in the ministry, Timothy himself hadn't actually suffered in the same way that Paul had, but he was still willing to follow it. And now we got to ask ourselves, are we going to be willing to follow in persecution? To see those that we love and respect, who proclaim the word, who serve, to see the world lash out and attack and not compromise but follow it knowing that we may be next. Now, we may get to this list and think, you know what? I was good up to the list up till now. <laughs> you know, following in the, the teaching, the, the conduct, aim in life, faith, love, all that. Yeah, I can do all that, but, but can we do all that and maybe skip out on the persecution part? Maybe just kind of duck out when that comes. And I realize that the only way that you can avoid persecution when it comes is to compromise on your teaching. Because the world hates the truth of God. And if you stand firm in that truth, they're going to hate you and they are going to persecute you. And the only way professed believers can escape that persecution is to compromise on what they believe. Either accept things that they know is wrong, that the Bible says is wrong, and to say it's okay so that the culture thinks that they're okay. But once you compromise 
on your teaching, the whole thing unravels. The dominoes fall down. You compromise on your teaching, and then your conduct is compromised. Your purpose is compromised. Your faith is compromised. Your patience, your love, your steadfastness is gone. Without a willingness to be persecuted and to suffer alongside and behind, alongside other faithful churchgoers, you cannot faithfully minister. And so now as we have taken a look, this is really just the criteria. This is how you need to be judging your ministry and evaluating your ministry and considering, is the work I'm doing, is what Christ called me to do, am I doing it in the way he desires me to? Now, the ministry for everybody is different, what God, the gifting that God has given you. But you need to look, these standards are universal, regardless of whether you're called to preach, to serve, to take out the trash, whatever your gift, whatever it is you do, you can adhere to these ministry standards. And if you persevere in these things, then you will have an enduring ministry of faithful service. But next, Paul prepares us for what we need to know. The next question, the next uh, consideration that we would have for to have an enduring ministry of faithful service is the question, what should I be prepared for? And we already discussed this a little bit, but in verses 12 and 13, Paul lays out for us the expectation for ministry. Let me read it. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse. Deceiving and being deceived. The expectation for ministry is this. It's going to be hard. It's going to be hard both from the outside and from the inside. The world is going to hate you and is going to afflict you. But then even there's going to be the internal struggles. There's going to be the imposters who are trying to undermine the teaching and the conduct of the church from within. And this is helpful. We need to know this. We can't go into ministry with rose-colored glasses, just expecting it to be easy and just progressively things are just going to get better and better and, and by the end there's going to be almost no trials, no difficulty, just coasting into heaven at that point. no. Ministry is going to be hard all the way through. And this is why you need that faith. Because if you're not looking forward to an eternal reward, you're not going to be willing to endure these hardships. You're not going to be willing to endure the persecution or the difficulty of having the internal betrayal of those among you who turn out to be false, who are part of deceiving and being deceived. Paul is preparing Timothy and us for the reality of these hardships so that we're not discouraged when it comes. Now the world, sometimes, now sometimes when we read verses like this and we see the world and the way it is and we see that persecution is coming, our preparation isn't exactly what Paul had in mind. 
Sometimes we think, okay, persecution's coming. Okay, better have a garden. Maybe get some chickens. Okay. (laughs) I have both. But not a bad thing in and of itself. But that is not how and why Paul prepares us for persecution. He doesn't prepare us so that we can dig a little hole and hide out in it. He prepares us so that we are ready to receive the affliction and ready to endure through it, not simply hide from it. Now, this passage I also recognize is one of those that sometimes trips us up a little bit. You know, we look at this and it says, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And so we wonder, okay, well, if I haven't been persecuted, am I not a believer? Or we might go the other way and think, okay, um, the waitress was rude to me, and I think it was because I was wearing a Jesus necklace. I was persecuted, therefore I'm a believer. I don't think either of those are getting at the right idea with this passage. And I think what we've got to recognize is that verse 12 and verse 13, they're both part of the package. They're both together looking at what's coming. They're both preparing us together. And so if verse 12 is giving us an absolute prophetic statement, then we would assume that verse 13 is also giving us this absolute prophetic statement that evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse. But the truth is we do know some bad evil people actually do repent. This doesn't mean that each and every, every time every bad person will become more and more evil. In the same way, it doesn't mean that each and every single genuine believer will be persecuted in the way of, that we read in the Bible of being thrown in prison, beaten. But it does mean that this will remain true, that this is a true statement in a proverbial general sense. This will continue to happen. The church and those who are godly will continue ongoingly through the ages be persecuted. That is a true statement. It is not a litmus test, necessarily, of defining who is and who is not saved. Although, very truly, if you are unwilling to be persecuted, then that might be an indicator. But Paul is preparing us for the reality that things are just going to be hard, and you need to be ready for that, not expecting ease and relaxation in ministry. Things didn't, were not easy for our Lord, so how could we expect it to be easy for us? And I think if we look at the record of history, we can see this has remained true. The church, the true, the believers, the godly, those who have sought after God, have ongoingly throughout history repeatedly been persecuted. And there has ongoingly always been those who are trying to interrupt and undermine the church from within. It remains a constant, constant struggle of ministry. So given up to this point now, we have looked at criteria for judging your ministry, for evaluating your own ministry so that you can have a sustained, ongoing, enduring ministry. We've looked at expectations so that you're not caught off guard. You know what's coming, and so you can be prepared to minister through difficult circumstances, through the persecution, through the hardships of internal betrayals. Prepared for that. 
But now given all these things, given that they are true, the final question and the most pertinent question to us is, okay, well, what do I do right now? What does that mean for me today? And I know that for many, sometimes this, this, the temptation, the discouragement causes us to, to think maybe we're missing something. Maybe we need to look somewhere else for what we're missing. Maybe there's some secret over here that I, I'm missing or some extra thing that I don't know about. Maybe, maybe I've just got to keep looking to find what I'm missing. But if that's the temptation, Paul addresses that beautifully here as he gives the command to Timothy and to us. Listen along with me as I read. He says, But as for you, continue in what you have learned. And have firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, how comforting is that? You don't need anything else. You just need to continue in what you've already received. The teaching, the instruction the gospel that has been handed down to us, the truth of the word is what we need. And we just need to continue in that. Now I need to take a moment and explain this word for continue. Now it's actually an extremely common word. It shows up all over the New Testament. In most places though, it's translated remain or stay. That's because in most places it has to do with a place. So, For instance, it might be Stay here. Or I remained here for a time. But what you got to realize is to stay here means I can't go over there. I can't remain here and go over there. And in the same way, you can't remain in the things you have already learned if you are seeking after and going after other things to inform your thinking, to inform your worldview, to, to supplement your ministry. This command is an exclusionary command. It's not like just, yeah, continue. Yeah, yeah I'll keep doing that and this and this. It, it's, it's continue in this. Remain here. Stay here. This is what you have been given. This is what you need to remain faithful in. And it's beautiful how this command actually contrasts with the accusation against the evil people and imposters from verse 13. What does it say about them? It says that they will proceed or go on from bad to worse. You see, the wicked are always moving on to something new. They're always finding the next thing. They're always looking for new. They're making progress. But we need to be content to remain in what we have already received. We're not here to find something new. We're not here for new discoveries. But furthermore, he makes his point by showing us and Timothy how absolutely reliable this word is, this teaching is. 
Look what he says. He says, continue in what you have learned, have firmly believed, knowing from, first of all, whom you have learned it. And who is that? That is, he learned it from his mother, his grandmother, and Paul. All people to whom Timothy has a long-standing, intimate knowledge of their life, their conduct, their behavior. Timothy knows that the ones who taught him this word are reliable. But even more than that, even more important than the reliability of those who instructed him is the reliability of the word itself. He says in verse 15, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. From childhood. That means that through his entire life, He's known the writings. He's known the words of the Old Testament. And he has confirmed them to be true and reliable time in, time again. And haven't we found the same thing? Those of us who have been in the Lord for any matter of time, can you not confirm that the word of God has always maintained relevance, that it has always been reliable, that it has never failed the test? It is a reliable guide and has never ceased to be such. But beyond that, the scriptures can do this. He says, those which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Now think of all of the worldly wisdom out there. Think of the countless number of books. Think of all the philosophies and all the the ways of thinking, the sciences, the... I can't even think of all the ways of thinking. I tried looking up thinking on Wikipedia to see different ways that different modes of thought or different systems of thought that have existed throughout humanity. The list was unbelievably long. It was like where you've got that tiny little scroll bar. (laughs) Just go down the list of just different ways people have tried to come up with to think about the world around us. And now consider this. You have all of that. How much of that has made anyone wise unto salvation? None of it. Absolutely none of it. So why on earth would we be tempted to turn to that first, second, third, fourth, at any point? Why would we dilute what we have here in the word of God when those things have completely failed those who followed them, those who came up with them? It did them no good. It did not lead them to salvation. So why should we, who have the words of God, which do lead to salvation, Why would we seek after those things as if we don't have this? We have the tools that we need already to have an enduring ministry of faithful service. You don't need anything else. You don't need to go out into the world and find their tools. You don't need to find their equipment. You don't need to find their resources to have a faithful ministry. Everything you have is right here. Now, in conclusion, I'm going to read, I'm going to finish out this 
chapter and read verses 16 through 17. I would have loved to have preached this as well, but verse 16 and 17 deserve their own sermon all to themselves. So I will just finish by reading what Paul does tell us about the scriptures. He says, all scriptures breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we just praise you, Lord, that you have so abundantly blessed us, Lord. You have first given us of your Son, that we might be reconciled to you, that we might be made your children, that he took our punishment and our penalty, that we might be made holy and blameless before you. And you did not leave us, Lord, to guess, to question how we are to live in light of that truth, in light of that gospel, but you have given us your word, Lord, to equip us for everything. And Lord, we just pray that we would use our lives in service to you, to minister to your people, and to bring you glory, we pray. Amen.